This message by Chad Porter, entitled "The Triumph of God's Love," was recorded at Wellspring Church on June 9th, 2019. The text for this message is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. The scripture reading for today comes from Romans chapter 8. We will be reading verses 31 through 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, with Him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who inter- indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you as your people, desperately in need of your word to us this morning. And you're confident that you have given it to us today. That you have promised to be present for us in grace as we gather together, fulfilling your command of not forsaking to gather together, to admonish one another, to hear your word taught and preached, to receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ afresh. And so we pray for your blessing to that end this morning. We ask that you would show us what is here in your word. We ask that you would give us insight, that you would show us, that you would meet us where we are, that you would comfort us in our affliction, that you would spur us on to love and to good works in response to all that you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. We conclude this morning our brief three-week、uh, series. Walking through some of the biblical themes in one of the worship songs that we just sang this morning, that we sang each week before the throne of God above. The first week we focused on the high priesthood of Jesus and His intercession for us. The second week, last week, we looked at Romans three and the justice of God and how what a life raft it is in despair. That God has saved us apart from anything we've done, and that He's fully just in doing so, because God the Just is satisfied to look on Christ Jesus and pardon us. And this week we think about one theme found in the third verse of that song, and that is the love of Christ and our connection to it. If you don't remember that verse, goes before or behold Him there, the risen Lamb. My perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself. I cannot die. 
My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And that's kind of our springboard into Romans 8 this morning. Thinking about our connection to Christ and the unbreakable, unshakable triumph of God's love. And before we dive right in, I was reading a story this week that I thought I would share as a, kind of the notion I started to think about of secret weapons or weapons which are unexpected and uh, which proved to be amazingly helpful. There's a story of uh, near the end of World War II, Hitler boasted that he was about to unleash the, uh, I, I do not know German, so uh, do not take this against or hold this against me, Vergeltungswaffen. I don't know. Anybody who knows German can, uh, uh, can, can correct me if I'm wrong. I had a seminary professor as an aside who used to say that, uh, like, uh, German is the most unromantic language there is because I love you sounded like you were attacking them or something like that. Yeah, anyways, uh, and I've offended anybody of German descent, but that was not my, my, my intent. So anyways, uh, about the end of World War II, Hitler boasted he was about to unleash the so-called vengeance weapons. And these would terrorize and overwhelm Britain and its allies, winning the war for Germany. This was his stated plan. And these, these so-called vengeance weapons were V1s and V2s, and indeed they rained down on Britain and Belgium, causing immense damage. But they were too little too late for the Third Reich, which succumbed in April 1945. And at the beginning of World War II, under immense secrecy, the British actually developed another technology that arrived at almost the precise moment and in just barely the proper quantity and quality to save Britain during this time, this last onslaught of these vengeance weapons. And in saving Britain, it saved democracies and so many lives. And that weapon, that technology, was defensive radar. And together with the flesh and bone of the splendid fighter aircraft, it won the battle for Britain arriving at just precisely the right time and the right need. And the reason I thought of this as I was kind of preparing uh, this message this morning is we talked last week about life rafts in times of despair. And that one such life raft when we feel overwhelmed and despairing of our own sin, of our own relationship and standing before God, is actually God's justice. Because we see that God's perfect justice is not cast aside to forgive us and like He might change His mind and turn back to it, but it's fully satisfied in Christ Jesus standing in our place, in our place condemned He stood. And so we offered, we said the Bible offered justice as a life raft for us in times of despair. And here this morning we see from Romans chapter 8, as Paul kind of sums up his argument so far through the first half of the book of Romans, that we have another life raft offered us. Another anchor to grab hold of in the midst of onslaught, in the midst of despair, in the midst of chaos in our lives. And it may not be what we might initially think. And that life raft, that additional kind of secret weapon that arrives in just the right time, I say secret, but it is not so secret because it is the triumph of God's love. And that might sound trite or kind of Christian easy. I hope it doesn't feel that way to you because it's the farthest thing from the truth. That's so what I hope that we'll see this morning through 
this last part of, the, of Romans chapter 8, that the triumph of God's love, far from being some pat Sunday school answer or concept, it's actually the soul's ultimate comfort and catalyst in the Christian life. The triumph of God's love is our soul's ultimate comfort and catalyst in the Christian life. And to help us think through our passage this morning and to see this to that end, we're going to focus our thinking on kind of three main categories as we walk through our passage. And those are opposition, separation, and motivation. Opposition, separation, and motivation. And so let's begin with the first, which is opposition. And it's important here as we do so often when we are coming to God's Word, we remember where we are in its context, where what's come before and what comes after. And you remember last week we were in Romans chapter 3, and we said that the first kind of uh, two and a half chapters of Romans are a little depressing in some sense. Paul's whole goal is to make us realize and see that all of humanity no matter who you are or where you've come from, who you're, come from, who your parents are, what your upbringing is, what kind of job you have, what your status is in society, every single person on this planet stands condemned before God in their sin. In their failure to uphold the righteousness that we were created to reflect and exhibit. Everybody stands condemned before God. And that's Paul's whole purpose in, Rome, in the first two and a half chapters of Romans. And we looked last week at the beginning of the second half of chapter 3, and we said that Paul makes a turn there from the bad news to the good news. And he says, you are all condemned in your sins, every single person, Jew, Gentile, slave-free, everybody, but now God has revealed the solution to our problem. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law which condemns us, and He has saved us by His grace. And then Paul goes on, really through the rest of Romans through chapter 8, expounding the grace of God. He set up the wrath of God and then he turns and he focuses and unpacks in many different ways God's grace to us in justifying us freely and bringing us in, making peace with God through Christ Jesus. And in Romans 8 at the end, our text this morning, Paul kind of sums up where he's been so far. He sums up his argument in these Nine verses and kind of what are the main takeaway? What is the main takeaway that we should have in our minds? And to do this, he does it by introducing two major questions. There's more questions in our passage today, but there's two main ones. And the other questions are kind of support for the two major ones. Paul uses two major questions to kind of sum up where he's been and what he's been talking about. And the first one, we'll talk about those in our first two points successively. The first one begins right in the first verse, which is verse 31. and has to do with opposition. So look at verse 31 again with me. What then shall we say to these things? What, should, what then shall we say to everything that Paul has said before this? Then what, what shall we say about it? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us. The first question, who will oppose you? Who can stand against you? If God is for us, which is Paul's labor to, to kind of show up to this point in Romans that God is for you. 
contrary to what you deserve, contrary to what you may think, God is for you if you are with Him. If you are one of His children. If you have run to Christ Jesus in repentance and faith, God is for you. And so Paul asks in summary, his first question is, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Who can stand against you? And he offers three more questions immediately following this to support his implied statement. The implied statement of verse 31 is, no one can stand against you. Since God is for you, which he's shown and talked about, no one can stand against you. And he gives us three questions to support this kind of implied statement of his that no one can stand against you. And the first of them is found in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is one of the sweetest verses in the Bible when you stop to consider it for a little bit of time. The first thing Paul wants to show us after he's asked the question or brought up the fact that God is for us, so no one can be against us, is to show that God is unwaveringly, unalterably committed to you. The first reason we can be confident that God is for us and therefore no one can stand against us is because God is unalterably and unwaveringly committed to you. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. right? If God has done the hardest thing, if He has given up His own Son, He did not even withhold His own Son, how will He not also stand with you to give you all things. You may think back to Abraham in Genesis 22, passage we studied some time ago here at Wellspring. Abraham prepared to offer Isaac, his only son, on the altar. Genesis 22, verse 12, He, God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son. From me. As Isaac was a pointer to Christ and Abraham's faith and willingness to give up his only son showed his true heart for God, so God's own willingness to give up his only son shows his unassailable commitment to his children. If he has given up the most hard thing, the most difficult, most precious thing, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Uh, many of you have children in here together this morning. And you know that they, they ask amazing questions. I'm convinced that the major reason I have children is for sermon illustrations. Um, <laughs> not really. Um, but I thought back to questions our daughter asks sometimes, our oldest, Olivia, and um, kids do this uniformly. They ask kind of random questions. They're, they're, they're learning the world or they're kind of inter- interacting. They're like pretending to be certain ways. They have big imaginations and stuff like that. And, and some, I remember a couple times Olivia will turn and look at me. She'll be like, Dad, if I get thirsty, will you give me water? And it's like, oh yeah, of course I'll give you water. You know, she asks a thousand questions like that every day. Like, oh, if I get hungry, will you give me food? No. No. Or if I need new socks, will you buy me new socks? Some of you are like, why is she asking those questions? Don't you buy her things? <laughs> or feed her or give her a drink? Um, 
And I'm like, oh, of course. And the answer is absolutely I'll give you water. I've act- what have I done? I, you know, we care for our kids. We care for our loved one, loved ones. We stay up with them all night when they are sick. You know, we train them to sleep when they are babies and we rock them to bed at really crazy hours of the mornings. You do things that are put you out much more than giving a little girl or a little boy a drink of water when they say they're thirsty or a snack when they say they're hungry. You know, I heard the applause when Margaret said no snacks at the, uh, from sports day. I know parents feel the difficulty of getting snacks. But anyways, we do the harder things. And so, of course, we're going to give them a drink of water. Of course, absolutely, we're going to do the easier things. The willingness to do the hard things shows our willingness to stick by our loved ones, even in the midst of, or especially in the midst of easier things, not as difficult things. And so is the same here in Romans chapter 8. The first reason, the first support for God is for you, and so therefore no one can stand against you, is look at the commitment of God to His people. Look at the commitment of God to you as found chiefly in His offering His Son. That's the first support, the first reason in our stand against opposition before God. The second is in verse 33. Look at that together with me. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Or maybe more literally, God is the one who justifies. Remember back to Romans 3. How are we saved? How does God forgive us for our sins? How does He step into the predicament that we find ourselves in as condemned before Him and deserving His just wrath against sin and Him needing to execute that just wrath because He can't just forget about it. Forgiveness doesn't mean sweeping things under the rug. The perfect justice of God requires that sin be dealt with because He is the ultimately just judge. And how does God remedy the situation? You'll remember from last week. He justifies us. He makes us righteous by Himself apart from anything that we have done. God righteouses the unrighteous apart from them. God sends Christ Jesus to stand in our place to absorb the just wrath against sin that we deserve so that we can be made righteous. And so the second reason that Paul offers here of because God is for you, no one can stand against you, is no one can bring a charge against you. No one can bring an accusation against you that sticks. Why? Because the reason that you stand before God in righteousness has nothing to do with you. Even the prince of darkness himself can bring the most valid accusation before God's throne based on your own sinfulness. He can bring it before God, accusing you. He can bring it before your own mind, accusing you that you do not stand before a holy God, that you do not deserve Him. He can do that, and it does nothing to your standing before God because your justification, your being made right before Him, has nothing to do with you. Absolutely nothing to do with you. Who can bring any charge against God's people? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, not them. 
He's taken care of it apart from anything that we could have done or ever will do. God's making you righteous had nothing to do with you and that's the second support for the reason that no one can oppose you because God is for you. And thirdly, no one can condemn you. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God is unwaveringly committed to you, unchangeably committed to you. No one can bring a charge against you because your standing before Him has nothing to do with you. And no one can condemn you. No one can render a different verdict than that which God has already rendered. No one can condemn you because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised and who sits exalted at God's right hand doing what from two weeks ago? Interceding for you. Praying for you. Pleading before the throne of God above for you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Why? Because God is committed to you. Why? Because no one can bring a charge against you. Why? Because no one can condemn you. Because God has taken care of all of this for you. And it's meant to make us look in the face of opposition and cling to the fact that this we know that God is for us. As one commentator puts it, when Paul asks who can be against us, he does not mean that the Christian has no opponents. His entire correspondence is eloquence of the foes that the Christian encounters constantly. He means that with God for us, it makes not the slightest particle of difference who is against us. No foe can prevail against his people, against the people who are supported by a God like that. It is not that no one can be against you. It is not that no situations and difficulties can arise because they absolutely will. This text is testament to that as Paul, as we'll later talk about in just a few minutes here. Many things and situations and principalities and powers will stand against you, against me in some sense. But what Paul is saying here is no one can ultimately or finally stand against us. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. If God is for us, who can be against us? Opposition is the first thing Paul calls our attention to this morning. And he tells us, commends us to rejoice in the fact that no one can finally stand against us because of God and His love. Second, separation. Separation. This is the second question which we said frames Paul's summary statement here at the end of Romans chapter 8. And so we'll read it and the response here this morning. Look at verse 35 once again with me. Who shall then separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep 
to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second question Paul asks here, kind of rhetorically, and then answers himself, is who can separate us? Who can oppose you? Who can stand against you? No one. In light of this, who can then separate you from Christ's love? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists a lot of possibilities. Possibilities of things which we may think, even if we don't think it cognizantly or clearly in our minds, we can feel or think that these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Tribulation, distress, or persecution. Witnesses and evidences of a hostile world against us, against God's people. Tribulation, distress, or persecution. Nakedness or famine. Can these separate us from the love of Christ? Maybe the most basic physical needs, clothing and food, physical sustenance. Can these separate us? Facing these trials, these difficulties, can these separate us from Christ's love? What about danger or sword? Danger being the threat of death. Sword being death itself. Can the threat of physical death or even physical death itself separate us from Christ's love? Or how about the rest of the possibilities that he lists in verses 38 and 39? Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation? Can any of this separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Can anyone separate us? Is Paul's second question. And the resounding answer is no. Absolutely not. Verse 37, no, in all these things, in all what things? In all these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness, famine, famine, danger, sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Or we are winning a most glorious victory, that word can be translated. In all these things, even in the midst of the difficulties which will come, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. There's two things that I want to say in light of this verse, this reasoning, this answer to the question of who can separate us from the love of God. And the first is notice how realistic God is. Like God does not pretend that suffering is not real. Like Christian scientists and some in the New Age movement would kind of champion. There's a there's a tendency among some to, to, to minimize suffering or feel like prosperity gospel or gospel teachers teach like if you come to Christ, everything will be better. Like you will have more financial prosperity. If you have enough faith, God will take care of you. You will be blessed. You are God's kids and God doesn't want his kids living on the streets or scraping by for money. That's not what Jesus says throughout the New Testament. That's not 
what the witness is throughout the Bible. Even looking back to verse 16 in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul and the Bible do not pretend that suffering doesn't exist. They don't pretend that we are not going to be regularly in times of tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or famine or danger or death. We absolutely will be in those situations. We absolutely will be in those situations. But even in all of these things, even in the fat middle of the muck and the mire and the chaos of life, even in those darkest of times, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And this is the second thing I want to say about verse 37. It's interesting that Paul would say, Him who loved us, past tense. Maybe you don't think that, but the love of God has been being told here and talked about here as something which is very active and present and ongoing and never to fail and never to stop. I mean, that's the way that God's love and presence and care for us have been presented up to this point throughout Paul's argument. And then he said, so you would almost expect for him to say, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Through him who is loving us, but he says through him who loved us in the past tense. And that's a small thing it's a small thing that we don't see maybe at first read or at first blush or if we're not stopping to think about it. But I think he did it intentionally. He did it intentionally because he wants to call our minds back to what? To the clearest, the surest, the most beautiful evidence of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, which is, which is Jesus' death on the cross. Even in all these things, the turmoil and the muck and the mire of life, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Who came as a man. Who suffered in our place. Who was condemned. Who was beaten. Who absorbed the full and final wrath of God against sin for us. This is the God that we serve. And this is the evidence that we know that even in the midst of difficulty, we are not separated from God's love as it is so easy for us to feel. Because you know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to feel that way. You know what it's like to be in those difficult situations, whether they be kind of acute pain, the death of a loved one, the sudden diagnosis that you weren't expecting, the job firing, your kid rebelling and walking away from the faith, your worst nightmare happening. You know what it feels like to feel like you are separated from God's love. You absolutely know what that feels like. But what Paul's calling our minds to here is even in those moments when we feel the most separated from God's love is when we are most connected to Christ. That, that, that very pain and suffering serves to highlight our connection and union with Christ in a strange way, much more than it does testify to the absence of His love for us. His author and pastor John Stott put it, Paul seems to be saying 
that since Christ proved his love for us by his sufferings, so our sufferings cannot possibly separate us from it. Rather, they should be seen as evidence of union with the crucified one, not a cause for doubting his love. Many of you are familiar with David Pallison, uh, a counselor, speaker, professor, uh, associated with Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and a great and wonderful guide to many people's souls and counseling and care of the soul. He died and went to be with the Lord uh, this past Friday, two days ago. And if you are the if you are on like CCEF, the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, if you're on their email list or anything like that, you've been getting email updates from him throughout his uh, time of health complications. And it went somewhat like this. He was sick and feeling ill in September of last year, 2018, and he wasn't recovering, so he went to the doctor. And then they discovered uh, uh, what they concluded was a uh, an operable tumor in his pancreas. And the doctor said this is a bad and difficult diagnosis, but it's one with a real silver lining because we caught it early and we can operate on it. And so the updates came out that this was a difficult diagnosis, but it is one that we are filled with most hope in. And then he went into surgery on November 5th last year. And during surgery, the surgeons discovered that it was not a stage one operable tumor, but it was stage four pancreatic cancer. And so he went to sleep thinking he had an operable pancreatic tumor, and he woke up to the knowledge that he had stage four inoperable pancreatic cancer in a matter of hours' time. And what did he say and how did he navigate these tumultuous waters? In one update, he wrote, How are we doing in light of such hard news? Grief and tears are close to the surface, but Scripture has been living and active and full of love. The dots are connecting, and the intimate voice and presence of God in Psalm 21 has been a particularly significant companion. Our shepherd watches over us, protects us, cares for us, and never dozes off. As Michael read for us during the pastoral prayer from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they will comfort me. God shepherds us, watches over us, protects us, and never dozes off. In one of his earlier books, Pallison wrote, God comes to you in the flesh, in Christ, into suffering, on your behalf. He does not offer advice and perspective from afar. He steps into your significant suffering. He will see you through and work with you the whole way. He will carry you even in the extremes. This reality changes the questions that rise up from your heart. That inward turning, why me, quiets down. It lifts its eyes and begins to look around. You turn outward and new wonderful questions form. Why you? Why you? Why would you enter this world of evils? Why would you go through loss, weakness, hardship, sorrow, and death? Why would you do this for me of all people? But you did. You did this for the joy set before you. You did this for love. You did this showing the glory of God in the face of Christ. God is for you. God is for you and no one can stand against you And therefore, no one can separate you from the love of Christ. 
the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Opposition is present, but overcome. Separation is threatened, but destroyed, even in the midst of suffering. And thirdly and finally, as we close, motivation. Opposition, separation, motivation. It's here I want to offer three brief implications for us this morning that arise from Romans 8. And the first is hope. The first is that love offers hope even in the midst of pain. Even if, even when God feels distant. Even when we feel in our souls the way the psalmist did in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Even when we feel and can and should bring to God our honest despair, you can pray the prayers that you see in the Psalms. Like Think about those things as you read them. They're audacious, like ostentatious prayers oftentimes. How long will you forget me? Will you be silent forever? You can pray and plead with those things to God. And God offers you hope even in the midst of them. He offers hope in our sufferings as it turns our gaze towards Calvary, as it turns our gaze toward the one who did not give up his own son, but gave him up for us all, who will give us all things, as it turns our gaze to the one who knows what it's like to suffer and who said, I will be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. The triumphant love of God in Christ offers hope even in the midst of pain and suffering and sorrow. Second, the love of God, the triumphing love of God offers peace in the midst of life's storms. Tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness, famine, danger, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. These are the circumstances in which God offers peace to you and me this morning. He offers peace and steadfastness to your souls because of the love, the triumphal unshakable, unbreakable love of God for you in Christ Jesus if you are His child. The love of God offers hope. It offers peace. The love of God, thirdly, offers the motivation, the impetus to walk in love. I mentioned earlier that the triumph of God's love is the ultimate comfort and catalyst for us in the Christian life. The Christian life is not about doing things to be a good person, to make yourself acceptable to God. The Christian life is about a God who has made you acceptable to Him apart from you and now calls you to walk 
graciously and lovingly out of that love that you have received. I mean, just listen to some of the commands that are couched in Scripture. Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The love of Christ, the unassailable, unbreakable love of Christ for His people offers hope in the midst of despair. It holds out and provides peace in the midst of chaos. And it calls us and shows us the proper heart with which to love and care and serve one another in this room and outside this room, even to the ends of the earth. It gives us hope. It gives us peace. It calls us to walk in love. And so as we think about the weapons of the warfare of the Christian life, may we not stray too far from that weapon which arrives in just the right time, which is far from a secret military weapon. It is one that's declared from the house from house to house and from the rooftops that the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord means that no one can stand against you, no one can oppose you fully or finally, and no one can separate you from Christ Jesus. The triumph of God's love is the soul's ultimate comfort and catalyst for us in times of despair. So as we close, we behold Him there, the risen Lamb, our perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself, we cannot die. Our soul is purchased by His blood. Our life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ our Savior and our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that our life is hid with Christ on high. We thank You that when we are in the midst of pain and toil and suffering, be it the chronic day-to-day, be it the catastrophic, life-changing watershed events, we are called and shown to the One who is not unacquainted with our griefs, who is not unfamiliar, unaware of our sufferings, but the One who knows what it is like to suffer the one who has been tempted in every way as we are, the one who understands our frailty, who is our older brother, Christ Jesus, come to stand in our place. This is the Savior that we have, and this is the God that we serve. And so we pray that You would be near to the brokenhearted. I pray that You would uphold the faint and the weary in this place this morning. I pray that You would be near 
to those who feel like they're on their last leg, to those who feel weary by life's constant grind. I pray that You would be with us who turn to other things to fill voids in our life. I pray that You would be near to us, O Lord. I pray as well for those in here who do not know You, who have not come to Christ Jesus, who have not come to accept this in repentance of faith. I pray that You would speak powerfully and persuasively to these people this morning and that You would bring new life, that You would bring faith, that You would cause those here to run to the open arms of Christ Jesus who has said anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be separated, will be joined inseparably from the love of Christ. So I pray that You would accomplish that this morning. I pray that You would bless our time of communion as we tangibly look to our suffering Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.